I still believe that we can build this world into something new, someplace where I can live past 25 and it's not a cause for celebration because these days I celebrate every breath, try to start counting them so I wouldn't take each one for granted. I wish I could give my breath to the boys who've had theirs taken, but I've stopped counting because it feels like there are too many boys and not enough breath to go around. Hello, welcome to Cambridge Forum, coming to you live via Zoom. I'm Mary Stack, the Director of Cambridge Forum, and today we're delighted to welcome as our guest, writer, poet, and educator, Clint Smith. More than 7 million people have watched Clint's two TED Talks, The Danger of Silence and How to Raise a Black Son in America, and his poetry collection, Counting Descent, some of which we will hear today, has received widespread critical acclaim. Clint's new book, How the Word is Passed, which examines our relationship with slavery, is due out next year. Professor Jude Nixon, who is acting as our moderator today, was born and educated in Granada and came to university in America in 1984. A post-civil rights intellectual, Jude was often the only black man teaching in his university department. Throughout this period, Jude kept a constant journal, this is during the 80s and 90s, entitled Living While Black. So, Warm welcome to both of you. I'm going to hand over to Jude, and I think perhaps um, Clint is going to kick off with um, some poetry for us. So Clint, uh, Counting Descent uh, seems to give us a great bridge uh, to the, the discussion of the George Floyd uh, death, even though it was written years earlier. So can you read a bit for us and talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll read, uh, I'll read a few poems from here. So uh, the collection was published in September of 2016 uh, and was written largely in response to the movement for Black Lives and um, thinking about the way that Black people were being killed at the hands of the state, thinking about what it meant for young Black children to be coming of age in this moment. Um, and then I was thinking and reflecting on, on my own coming of age as a young uh, Black child in America uh, and thinking about the sort of what I call the marathon of cognitive dissonance that it is to grow up as a young black person in this country. And in my case, how one grows up in a home where you feel loved, affirmed and celebrated, and yet go out into a world in which by, to some you are rendered a caricature of someone else's fear. Mm. And how do you navigate sort of both of those? How do you navigate being seen by one way from your community and by see, in being seen a profoundly different way by others? Um, and so I'm gonna read the, the title poem of the book. And it was kind of the poem that served as the entry point for the larger collection, hence why the, the collection itself was named after it. Really thinking about, because part of what I'm interested in as a writer, as an artist, as a scholar, is thinking about the histories that bring us to this moment, and both the macro histories as well as the micro histories. What is, a, you know, sort of in a macro context, um, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be Black? What does it mean to be part of a lineage of people who were brought to this country against their will? Um, in a micro sense, what does it mean to be my, my father's son? What does it mean to be my mother's son? What does it mean to be somebody's partner, to be somebody's uh, sibling, to be somebody's father, um, to be somebody's grandson? And, and how does the confluence of those macro and micro his, histories and lineages shape the way that I navigate the world? So this poem is attempting to capture both of those. And uh, unfortunately, it, it is still feeling relevant to many today. Counting Descent. 
My grandfather is a quarter century older than his right to vote and two decades younger than the president who signed the paper that made it so. He married my grandmother when they were four years younger than I am now and were twice as sure about each other as I've ever been about most things. They had six children separated by nine years, three cities, and one Mason-Dixon line. There were twice as many boys as girls, but half as many bedrooms as children, which most days didn't matter because poor ain't poor unless you name it so, and kids prefer playing to counting, so there was never much time to wallow in anything but laughter. My mother was the third oldest, or the fourth youngest, depending on who you asked. She was born on a federal holiday, which my grandmother was thankful for, said the good Lord only got one day off when he built the world, so one day is all she needed to. Mom says Pop was persistent, wouldn't give up when he asked if he could take her down the street to get some coffee, which back then cost $2 less than it does now. Now, Mom is trying to stop drinking coffee, but she still loves Pops. They've been married for 31 years and have three kids who are six years and 1,517 miles apart. My birth took 12 hours and 43 minutes, which is probably because my head is five times too big. Mom said that my head was big because I needed enough room to read all the books in the library, which seemed like infinity even though I didn't really know what infinity meant. But I heard my teacher say it once when she talked about the universe and books felt like the universe to me. I was pretty good at math too, until about fifth grade when they started putting numbers and letters together, which didn't make much sense. My brother is 70 months younger than me, but is taller and knows more about numbers, so it doesn't always feel like this is true. My sister is 24 years of loyal and eight years of best friend. I am the oldest of three, but maybe the most naive. I still believe that we can build this world into something new. Some place where I can live past 25 and it's not a cause for celebration because these days I celebrate every breath. I tried to start counting them so I wouldn't take each one for granted. I wish I could give my breath to the boys who've had theirs taken, but I've stopped counting because it feels like there are too many boys and not enough breath to go around. Can you comment a bit on breath and um, so many, I can't breathe. I mean, it's just um, breath, I guess, means so many different things. It means a, a way of survival, it means spirit, it means pneuma, it means Holy Ghost, it means so many things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to uh, comment too, too much on it. I mean, it is, it is meant to encapsulate uh, and to take on all of those different meanings right. um, at once. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those writers who, who attempt not to, to tell people what a poem or a line in a poem means. Um, because I think one of the most interesting things as an artist is to put something out into the world uh, and for people to come, come back to you and tell them and tell you, you know, what they thought the poem meant and what the poem meant to them. You know, I've had so many poems that I've written that I wrote with a, a certain intention and people have come back and said, oh, like this poem was about, you know, my breakup or my dog or my relationship with my mother or, and I might not have intended it in any of those ways, but I think that's the beauty of, a yeah. poem or a painting or a or a novel or any you know any piece of art or literature is that you create something and put it out into the world and you have no control over how people interpret it they bring their own experiences their own sensibilities um to the page and and that is part of what shapes the their engagement with the art and that is part of what shapes what the art creates for them uh, right. so you know so breath might mean a lot of different yeah. things to a yeah, lot yeah. of different people and yeah. who am i to to tell someone what it what it right. should mean. So, so we're moving from uh, from George Floyd to Rashad Brooks. Um, I'm going to use a Nikki Giovanni poem. The ending of it, um, I killed a spider. I had dinner with Nikki some years ago, mm. and uh, she's always a, a sort of a favorite of mine. Yeah. And 
And, and Nikki, in the poem, I'm just going to read the last couple of lines, have you comment on it. But Nikki talks about, is it ever right to, or is it okay to kill someone or something simply because you're frightened? Mm. And, and I recall with, with uh, Rashad Brooks, they, when the interview with the police who shot him was asked, he said, I got scared, I was frightened. Mm. So here's the Nikki Giovanni ending line on, I killed a spider, which sort of ends rhetorically. And she scared me and I smashed her. I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I am frightened. You know, it's, uh, it is certainly uh, an acute metaphor um, for, for where we are. And, you know, with regard to, to police and, and representatives of the state, unfortunately, uh, a police officer can always say that they were scared to uh, absolve themselves of responsibility uh, absolve themselves of punishment from what they were doing, um, and we know that to be the case. But we saw the we saw that video. We knew that he didn't have to engage in that way. And we've seen this time and time again. I remember, I think, with the man who was killed, Walter Scott, I believe is the name, who was killed in in Charleston, South Carolina, who yeah. was running away from the police officer, literally running in the opposite direction. The police officer shot him in the back. If I'm remembering correctly, I think that officer also said that he was scared for his life. Um, yeah. Yeah, before a video came out. And I, I can't remember if even after the video came out, he said he was scared for his life. But it is it, that I think those moments reflect the absurdity of the claim and also don't necessarily take into account the way that Black people fear for their lives in these scenarios, right? Like, so part of what I think is important to remind folks is that if you are a young Black man and you grew up in a community in which the only relationship you have ever had with the police is that of violence in which these people have only ever been those who came, who pulled up, who stopped you, who frisked you, who pushed you against the wall, who assaulted you, who violated you. And they did that time and time and time again. It makes sense that if one day when you see the police, you decide you're going to run, right? It makes sense that when you're having an engagement with the police, if you see an opportunity, you're going to be like, I'm trying to get out of here because I don't want that to continue to happen to me. And then people will come back if something happens to you and say, why did you run? You shouldn't have run. You should have just cooperated. But if, but if your cooperation for your entire life has only led to you being physically and emotionally and psychologically violated, it is, it is not irrational that you would find a different way to respond and try to escape that situation. So, so I, you know, that's what that poem makes me think of. It's like, whose who's fear are we legitimating? Mm -hmm. And whose fear is, is worthy? Um, of being taken seriously. And if you are a representative of the state carrying a gun paid for by taxpayer dollars, there are a different set of responsibilities. There are a different set of expectations. Uh, and, and I think that that is, uh, that is important. So, so you have two young kids and I want you to imagine a world in which they are growing up that is not the traditional ways that uh, young black kids think about and that's sports, music, entertainment. Uh, what do you imagine success for them would be um, in, and opportunities that you would like to see them grow into? I want them to have choices. I want them to be whoever and whatever they decide to be. Right. Um, I've really tried to be careful of of the rhetoric of asking my kids, you know, my, my one-year-old's a little young for it, but even my three-year-old, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, because I think it puts so much 
unnecessary power on the idea of occupation as being I, something that is definitional, something that is something that is the thing that determines like who you are in the world. And so I've really tried not to to use language that suggests that that is what is guiding me or that is what is important. Uh, I want my children to be kind. I want my children to be empathetic. I want my children to be generous. I want my children to have a freedom of choice of, of who they are and, and how they navigate the world. Yeah. Um, and, and that's all, you know, that is all. And I, and I hope they are healthy. Uh, those are the most important things for me. It is not what school they go to. It is not what job or occupation they have. It is instead uh, what kind of people they are and, and how hopefully we can build a world that treats them with the dignity and respect um, that they will hopefully put back out into the world themselves. Right. I'm looking at your poem, uh, No More Elegies Today, and I want you to talk a little bit about it. Um, the, the poem uh, is built on a series of anaphoras, the expression, but rather, hmm. uh, which presents a little girl in an ideal, if normal life, what a little girl might otherwise do, live, and enjoy, instead of, in the opening lines of the poem, dodging bullets. Hmm. So can you extrapolate a little bit on the poem and especially the ending, like the entire world is giving her a round of applause? Should I read the poem or just yeah. go into it? Yeah. Um, today, I will write a poem about a little girl jumping rope. It will not be a metaphor for dodging bullets. It will not be an allegory for skipping past despair, but rather about the back and forth bob of her head as she waits for the right moment to insert herself into the blinking flashes of bound hemp but rather about her friends on either end of the rope who turn their wrists into small flashing windmills, cultivating an energy of their own, but rather about the way the beads in her hair bounce against the back of her neck, but rather the way her feet barely touch the ground, how the rope skipping across the concrete sounds like the entire world is giving her a round of applause. So, you know, this poem and many poems in the sort of second half of the collection are attempting to complicate the idea of black trauma and black pain and black death. Because I think when I first began writing this collection, this collection was written over two years or so. When I first began writing, I was writing largely in response to black pain and suffering and death. And I was trying to name it. I was trying to address it. I was trying to wrestle with it. I was trying to make people confront it. And I think what became clear to me as I continued writing is that I didn't want a collection that conveyed a singular aspect of the Black experience as if it were the entirety of it. And I think that it, in moments like this, and more generally, it is so important for people to be reminded to take seriously the violence and pain and oppression that Black people experience in a contemporary sense and also in a historical sense, and also to remind ourselves that Black people are not defined by that pain, that we are not singularly shaped by oppression, that who we are that we do not exist beyond um, that which attempts to to harm us. And so for me, I wanted to make sure that I was writing poems that addressed, you know, I, while I was writing this collection, I was also falling in love with the person who would become my wife, right? And mm -hmm. so there are poems about uh, that sort of interspersed throughout the, the collection. There are poems about music. There are poems about watching my parents dance together in the kitchen. 
um, when I was young. There are poems about, um, and, and poems like No More Elegies Today, I think is, is, a, is directly naming what a poem that could otherwise go in a different direction, right? Because what I'm saying is that I could write a poem about how the sound of the jump rope, you know, hitting the concrete reminds me of a bullet or how, you know, the, the kids jumping reminds them of, of uh, or reminds us of, of children dodging bullets or something. But I, all, I think it was important to, to pivot, to, to take the poem in one direction and pivot in another direction and say, we're actually not gonna do that here. While it's important to name and understand these things, it is also important to name and understand uh, joy and laughter and celebration and levity and childhood for childhood's sake. And that is what I was hoping to, to do in this poem and, and hoping to uh, just remind the reader and to remind myself that we do not always have to write into a space of trauma and that we exist, mm -hmm. that we exist beyond that trauma. Yeah. The Jamaican poet Claudia Rankin uses a, a, a quote uh, to describe a poem by Enzo Surin, which I'll read in a moment. But Claudia says, those who target us have a hard time policing their imagination. Mm. And she's referring to a poem by, again, Surin, when night falls with premature exits. He writes, is there a place where black men can go to be beautiful? Mm. Is there light there, touch? Is there comfort or room to raise their black sons as anything other than a future asterisk? At risk to be asteroid or rogue planet, but not comet. To be studded with awe and clamor and admired for radial trajectories across a dark sky made of asphalt and moonshine. To be celebs and not deemed a magnificent sight. Thoughts? I mean, Claudia Rankine is brilliant. And I think that that poem is asking those questions. And, you know, and again, this was, I think we're in a different moment now than we were five years ago. I think right now, the discourse around Black life and, and surrounding sort of Black Lives Matter movement more generally is in a more nuanced, sophisticated space than it was not that long ago. Um, that it was just a few years ago. I think we're able to, we have a better sense of the different systems of oppression that have enacted violence against Black people historically. And I think we have a better sense too of that Black people exist beyond the, the scope of, beyond the scope of violence. You know, I think that that poem, we were in a, in when Claudio Rankine was writing Citizen and, and, and yeah. the sort of cultural phenomenon that it did, um, I think she was similarly attempting to say, we look at what you have done to us. Look at what this country has done to Black people. And mm -hmm. also, Black people are remarkable. Black people are beautiful. Look at, look at what you have done to Black people and look at what Black people have done in spite of that, right, mm -hmm. to overcome that, to move beyond the oppression that you have enacted on us over generations. Um, and you know she's one of our most important writers for that reason. Well, I have one last question. It seems to uh, that education, resources, role models have a spiritual life and building uh, what Benedict Anderson called imagined communities. And you talked a lot about that earlier, though you didn't use the Anderson word, but you talked about imagined communities. Mm. Uh, and he says that there are essential ingredients for change. 
Asheville, North Carolina has just agreed to pay reparations to descendants of former slaves. How important is this, not just as a symbolic gesture, but in practical terms to you? So I, I can't speak specifically to Asheville because I haven't done my research to see what sort of specific initiatives or policies that they are proposing. But I, I think reparations is, an, is a deeply important and deeply serious policy possibility, right? I, I think you cannot have centuries and centuries and centuries in which Black people were prevented from accessing certain resources because they were Black and then propose solutions that don't take into account race, right? It is, it, is dis it is morally and intellectually disingenuous. And so I think that part of what has to happen is that, you know, reparations, you know, the root word repair, um, there has to be both a, a material repair, uh, but there also has to be a sort of repair of our consciousness. And I think we are slowly moving toward that, but Black but America has to account for and has to reckon with what it has done to Black people and how that is, has fundamentally shaped the reason that Black people have disproportionate outcomes along lines of economics, education, health, uh, the criminal legal system, the list goes on and on. And that to remind ourselves, to remind, for this country to remind itself, because Black people know that the reason the country looks the way that it does is not by accident, that it was designed this way, that there were decades and generations of policy prescriptions that were created. The example I bring up all the time is the New Deal. The New Deal being the, what we're told is uh, some of the most progressive series of legislative act, acts signed in the 20th century. They are responsible for creating the contemporary middle class. They are the thing that lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty uh, into the suburbs, into homes, into, uh, into college, um, and created the economic and social bedrock upon which millions and millions of families moved upwards in class, achieved upward mobility, uh, and created intergenerational wealth. But Black people in this country were specifically prevented from having access to the benefits that the New Deal afforded. So Black people didn't have access to Social Security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, healthcare, GI Bill, minimum wage protection, all of the things that, again, were the, the economic bedrock upon which intergenerational wealth in this country was built. And you very intentionally did not give it to an entire demographic of people, specifically in the South. Yeah. And so then people want to act surprised generations later when there are disparate outcomes along the lines that those resources have been allotted. And so that is a microcosm of a much larger history that America has to reckon with. And until there's a sort of public and conscious uh, reckoning of consciousness, I don't think we will get to a place where we can engage in, not that, and they are not mutually exclusive, but I think they have to happen in tandem, the, both the material repair and the repair of our sense of ourselves as a country. One of the discussions we had yesterday on NPR, the local WGBH, was over marijuana laws. When the Commonwealth passed, a, they voted for the marijuana law. It was voted specifically to repair what has happened to Black men who are incarcerated for marijuana laws. So, so many of the new marijuana permission to open stores was supposed to be directed exactly at black business owners. Uh, I think right now in Boston, there was only one person who is a person of color that, had to, that has the right to sell marijuana. 
So the discussion yesterday was, what the hell is this? You know, here's a law that was written to empower uh, black business owners because of what happened to black people. And we have one out of, I think, 10 who has the right to, to sell marijuana in the city of, of, of Boston. So it's one of the strange, one of the oddities of the law that was written directly for that purpose and it's not serving that purpose. Yeah. So again, it's, a, it's a going back to reparations again in a, in a microcosm, but it's still not working in so many ways. Uh, Mary, I think I'm back to you. Yeah, um, we haven't got a lot of time left, but I did want to ask you both this question because Jude had alluded to this list that he made for himself, raising his children. There was a hit list. Uh, things you had to do just because you were black that might be different for everybody else, but they were absolute things. You know, never travel alone, always wear your wedding ring. I mean, he's got an incredible list of things, which, you know, was mind-boggling to me. But one thing that he did say was very important was nurturing a spiritual life, an inner spiritual strength that he could draw from. And um, before I ask you if that's true for you, um, I remember when we had Cornell West on, he made a very uh, telling comment saying that if it wasn't for the blues, can you imagine what the history of this country would have been like? Because if all that anger had been played out instead of mm. being put into music, mm. can you imagine what that would have been? It would have been Armageddon. Mm. So it was, it was an interesting thought. So I, for you, um, obviously you were raised in a culture and a house which must have been rich. Um, in terms of literature and all these other things. Have the churches provided an important place for nurturing, guidance, support in the absence of these other things and maybe family life sometimes? Yeah, I, I, grew, up, um, I grew up Catholic in New Orleans and, and attended, and my family still attends, Black Catholic Church, um, which for many people is, you know, they don't understand the idea of like a black Catholic church as, as something that exists, but in New Orleans, it's quite normal. And so, you know, the sensibilities of being raised in a, in a sort of Catholicism that was imbued with black culture, that was imbued with, imbued with New Orleans culture, still shape who I am and how I think about the world today. You know, I think my spiritual life is always demanding that I ask, who are my commitments to? What am I working towards? And, and more than anything, I think it reminds me that the work is so much bigger than me and that I am part of a history and a lineage of people who worked and fought and rebelled and, and had uprisings against a system that they sought to defeat, even though they knew that it was unlikely that they would see the end of that system themselves, right? Like slavery in this country existed for 250 years. People were fighting against slavery from the first moment they arrived on these shores. The vast majority of people who, who fought against slavery, enslaved and non-enslaved, died before they ever saw the end of that pernicious institution. Does that mean that work was for nothing? No, of course not. Because part of what it is is you're chipping away at a wall and you chip away and you chip away and you chip away and you chip away. And nobody knows how thick that wall is, how far it goes, but you keep chipping away so that the next people coming after you have less to chip away at. And at some point, you're gonna to get to that light on the other side of the wall. And so it's a reminder, you know, my spiritual life reminds me that, you know, I may not see the end of these systems of oppression in my lifetime. I'd like to see the end of mass incarceration in my lifetime, it, it is quite possible I will not. I would like to see us move toward a more equitable integrated society with regard to education. It is 
uh, also very possible that I will not. I mean, the list goes on and on, but, but I'm reminded that you don't attempt to build a better world necessarily so that you can experience it yourself. You attempt to build a better world so that someone somewhere down the line will experience it, whether it be my children or their children or their children after that. We all are people with our chisels and we make a decision about like how forcefully we chip away at that wall for, for the, over the course of our lives and know that it's okay if we, if we don't see the light ourselves. That's a very uplifting, positive note for us to end on. Thank you very much, both of you, for making time to bring us this discussion, Living While Black. Nice meeting you, Clint. It's a pleasure. So, Cambridge Forum has been made possible today through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter. We're supported by the Lowell Institute and Mass Cultural Council. Today's programme was underwritten by Cambridge Trust Bank. And I want to thank everyone who joined us and everyone who will enjoy this programme on the podcast via our website, cambridgeforum.org. I'll see you all soon. Thank you. Thanks so much.